I'm Indiana University tourism professor Evan Jordan, and this is the Trip Doctor Podcast. Everybody's alright. Everybody's inside. Everybody's on you. And the Sambaru. Everybody's alright. Everybody's inside. You're a chimpanzee from the Zimbabwe. That track is called Soul Africa by Juanitos. If you want to hear more, you can find it online at the Free Music Archive. My guest today is Dr. Mary Mustafanajad. Mary's an internationally renowned researcher of volunteer tourism, which she approaches from a cultural anthropology perspective. Over the past 10 years, she's embedded herself in communities to better understand the difficult problems that come with hosting complete strangers in their communities who usually want to help but sometimes don't know how. Her recent research has addressed the popularization of people posting pictures with their volunteer tourism experiences to Instagram, which some are calling Barbie saviors. One of the most iconic images would be like a young white woman holding a child from a developing country and posting things like uh, that describe how lucky they feel they are and that they had a real connection with the child. In her interview, she talks about the do's and don'ts of volunteer tourism, how to have the most positive impact if you want to volunteer, and how to not become a Barbie savior. Mary, so I always like to get to know my guests as travelers themselves before talking about their tourism research. Can you give us a little bit of a background on your experience as a traveler? Like, let's talk about where's the first place that you ever traveled that sort of opened your mind a little bit to the world out there? Well, I would say the first international destination, like most Americans, uh, were... Canada and Mexico, um, but it wasn't really until I started going to Southeast Asia that I um, traveled independently as well as um, traveled extensively as a young person, but then also as later as a researcher. You've done a lot of work in Southeast Asia, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I'm always interested in getting to know, like, what is your favorite place right now? Like, if you could take a trip, like, semester's over, your grades are all turned in, where do you go on a trip? I have lived in Hawaii since 2005, uh, besides the, the, between 2012 and 2014, I lived in New Zealand both of which are in the Pacific, but I have never been to any other Pacific island. And so I would love to visit um, a, a number of places in the Pacific. Probably right now, I might, I, I'd probably go to either Vanuatu or Tahiti. And do you have like a specific reason for that or just because they sound cool? 
Well, they definitely sound cool. Um, one of my best friends did her dissertation research in Vanuatu, so I've heard a lot about Vanuatu, and I've been compelled to uh, visit at some point. I also have a PhD student who's doing her dissertation research in Vanuatu on um, indigenous perspectives of uh, climate change and sea level rise. And so, I, yeah, I feel like I have a number of reasons. Yeah, <laughs> so you have you have connections. Yeah. Do you, right. do you think so being based in Hawaii is kind of unique? Do you think that affects the places that you choose to travel because Asia is so much more accessible from there and really the whole Asia Pacific region including New Zealand, Australia. So do you think that plays a role? Do you think if you lived in like Florida, you'd be wanting to go to different places? Yeah, I mean, Hawaii kind of ruins it for you in terms of beach destinations. <laughs> right, like you do, like you don't want to go to any other beaches. So, what else is there? That's right. Yeah. So, in my opinion, Hawaii has some of the best sort of beaches in the world. I've been to a lot of beach uh, areas, and it's hard to beat Hawaii. Um, so, beyond beach desti destinations. I also enjoy going to mountainous regions or places that are sort of culturally very interesting or unique. Um, I generally travel for work nowadays, um, so I'm primarily spending my time in uh, mainland Southeast Asia, which is, and particularly in the mountainous areas. Can you tell us over the past oh, 15 years or so that you've been doing work? particularly on volunteer tourism in Thailand, like what are sort of some of the interesting things that you found? I guess, how did you get started there? And then how did your research on volunteer tourism evolve over time um, to what it looks like today? So, you know, like a lot of things in life and academia, uh, it was sort of uh, just by chance that I met uh a student at the University of Oregon, where I did my master's research or my master's degree, um, who was from Chiang Mai, which is in the northern part of Thailand. And I told her I was interested in tourism, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do my master's research on, something around culture and tourism and development. And she invited me to stay at her parents' house in Chiang Mai over the summer. And I don't know how serious she was, but I showed up in Chiang Mai and she uh, invited me into her home and I stayed with her for three months and I started studying Thai language and I uh, went trekking quite extensively and uh, to collect data for my, mas um, for my master's project and it sort of evolved from there. I continued to return to Thailand every, I think, almost every year um, to study Thai language and also to sort of deepen my understanding of sort of the context of Northern Thailand. And so it really just evolved from there. Um, it was around, so I did my master's research in 2004 um, and then I was in Thailand in 2000, let's see, 2007 for a Fulbright Thai language program, the Advanced Study of Thai program. And um, uh, it was at that point that I started noticing these volunteer experiences uh, that were advertised throughout the city. And I was 
it was interesting to see this industry kind of explode during that time. This is sort of the beginning of uh, volunteer tour. The, this is when volunteer tourism really started to take hold, not only in Thailand, but in the rest of Southeast Asia and indeed globally. And so um, what, do, what do people do when they're a volunteer tourist in Thailand? I mean, I know it kind of looks different in various places around the world. You know, some places people go and build houses. Some places people go and help take care of animals. Some places people go doing other things. And so what is what is the major volunteer tourism, I guess I'll say, attraction in northern Thailand? So in northern Thailand, they have all of the... Uh, all of the volunteer tourism experiences that you would expect. So, like you said, you can go build a house, build a school, build a library, um, all of the kind of infrastructure development projects. There's also a number of conservation-oriented volunteer tourism projects. Definitely the elephant sanctuaries or caring for um, uh, tigers, or there's even, like, um, uh, the... The dog shelters that you can volunteer in. Um, so there's a range of different volunteer experiences with animals, but also conservation. Um, there's ecotourism development, volunteer tourism. So basically, uh, NGOs that are recruiting volunteers to develop ecotourism for rural villages uh, as a livelihood strategy. Um, in addition to that, there's a number of uh, English language teaching programs, especially in um, amongst monk, uh, novice monks. So um, these are quite popular as well. And so, like, it, it, there's all these experiences that people can have, and you've done research fairly extensively on you. Like, I, I, it seems like you've done research on both the, the volunteer tourists and the host communities. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So. Is this something that you think is mutually beneficial? Like, what are people expecting to get out of a volunteer tourism experience? And does that match up with what people who are in, in the host communities that are accepting these volunteers into their sometimes homes, but communities definitely, do those things match up? Or is there like a, a dissonance between those two things? Okay, yeah. I mean, so this is a question that I've been asked quite a few times. My perception on this is really based on my firsthand experience working in host communities. And I would definitely say that volunteer tourism can be a positive experience for host communities. And oftentimes in the communities that I was working, people would say, host community members would say things like, if the volunteers aren't here, nobody is going to be here, right? And so the idea is basically that the volunteers are the ones that are caring right now and caring about their situation. This is a, I'm talking specifically about an, uh, a women's shelter that I uh, was doing research in. So these are um, women that were marginalized in their communities in some way or had young children, uh, so young women that had young children that needed to be um that needed to be in the shelter for a range of reasons. So at the local level, yes, you can have positive, they can be quite positive. Um, it can also be quite negative. 
in terms of a range of different things that can happen in the context of volunteer tourism where there's a lot of where there's exploitation happening. Um, this didn't occur to the extent that I've heard of it happening. So for example, uh, an example that a lot of people are talking about now is orphanage tourism, for example. So that would be a form of volunteer tourism that exploits young children for uh, basically for money from uh, people who are seeking to do good by giving money to orphanages. And so children are forced to sort of perform these uh, relationships with the volunteer tourists um, and in many cases they're not getting much out of the situation so some people have talked about that as a form of slavery even um, and I think the Australian government just passed a law on uh, not participating in orphanage tourism in uh, abroad which is quite interesting so yeah I mean there can be both positive and negative implications at the local level um, like I said before, from an anthropological perspective, we anthropologists often looking at the local level and thinking about how that relates to how we can scale up. Like, what are the implications beyond the local level? And so from that perspective, things start to look a little bit different. Um, we can think, if we think, if we scale out, for example, and think about the ways in which like what does volunteer tourism, what are the drivers of volunteer tourism? In many cases, you have a situation where the, the state either has pulled out of development initiatives or it was never there, right? So volunteer tourism is really, as kind of, you can think about it as like a band-aid approach to broader structural inequalities, right? So the idea is that you have, a in the 1980s and 1990s, you start to see the rise of uh, non-governmental organizations or NGOs um, that have in many ways sort of band-aided these broader structural inequalities around issues like development and conservation and um, infrastructure and a range of other things. And so volunteer tourism organizations in many ways are trying to sort of fill in where the state left off. Um, and the implications of that are quite extensive, right? We can, and they extend well beyond sort of traditional volunteer tourism. We can think of the ways that, for example, celebrities are involved in a range of volunteering activities, which could be characterized as sort of celebrity volunteer tourism um, or philanthropists or these kinds of things. So they're positive, yes, in the sense that they're giving attention to these issues. But at the same time, we want to be sort of conscious of the way in which it frames our understanding of global inequalities and thinking of, we want to think more deeply maybe about the, um, is this the appropriate response? Um, because oftentimes it's the sort of, it's the small scale changes that are used to, it's the small scale experiences that can help a few, yes, but the broader sort of society in which they're taking place is not, it's not addressing the broader inequalities or the number of people or the scale of the population that actually needs um, assistance. And so it's really gets to questions of state versus civil society and a range of um, important issues. It seems like one of the things that people are really interested in 
when they are doing volunteer tourism experiences is number one, people do this mostly because they want to help. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, well, that's my question because a lot of people you see, you know, it may also be about putting that picture on Instagram of you helping. And for, for those people, I guess, does helping really matter or do they just want people to think that they're helping? Yeah. I mean, it's a complicated thing. I think you really have to like, if you really want, I think that it would be interesting to talk to a psychologist about this because it is a performance, right? So altruism is, I mean, most people who study this kind of thing would say that altruism is never a hundred percent sort of, helping is never a hundred percent altruistic, right? It makes people feel good. That's another reason why they do it. Sure. Um, And then oftentimes, even the volunteer tourism organizations will sometimes explicitly say that you are going to get, you get more out of this than you're giving basically. Um, because it, it does change people. People get a lot out of the volunteering experience that especially young people, it really often opens their eyes to a whole new world that if they spend extensive time, for example, two months or more, they, um, they grow with a cohort of other volunteers in the host community. And I think most people say that it, that it changes, it changes them in a number of ways. Uh, at the same time, it's also become quite cliche to do the sort of spring break volunteer tourism experience, taking photos with, uh, children and, um, you know, and, a country, uh, in a developing country and posting them on your Facebook account. Um, and it's become so cliche that a number of websites have, uh, been developed that critique these, uh, representations. So for example, there's the Barbie saviors website, as well as the humanitarians of Tinder. I want to ask you about that because you have done some research on this. Like what is a Barbie savior and what was the other one that you mentioned? Uh, humanitarians of Tinder. Yeah. So what what is that? What does that mean? Right. So the Barbie Savior account was developed by um, two, uh, I believe, young women who were had been volunteers themselves, um, and then they started to become a little bit cynical as well as jaded of the volunteer representations of volunteer tourism, especially in. Africa. And so in on their website, they have a website as well as a linked Instagram account where they basically have um, where they dress up Barbies as volunteer tourists um, in Africa, an unidentified country in Africa. And they um, and they have a number of different hashtags that basically are apparent like poking fun at the um, at the narrative, common narratives of volunteer tourists. Um, so, so do you think this is like is that is that bad for volunteer tourism, or do you think it's bringing light to something that's a real problem and should be addressed? I mean, what does this mean for the volunteer? Because, like you said, volunteer volunteer tourism has a lot of positive impacts. And so is sort of poking fun at it what it needs, or is that something that you think is going to be kind of detrimental to the process? Yeah, I mean, I think to a large extent, these 
boutiques have been, they've been popularized and that they've had some of the newer research on volunteerism suggests that young people are actually well aware of these critiques and and you start to hear people say things like, I'm not posting any photos on Facebook um, because I don't want to be one of those people, right? So the idea is that young people have started to internalize the critiques and become conscious of the idea that it perpetuates a particular kind of narrative of this sort of white savior narrative um, of especially children in developing countries. So the most, one of the most iconic images would be like a young white woman holding a child from a, a developing country and posting things like uh, that describe how lucky they feel they are and that they had a real connection with the child and that, yeah, so these kinds of, these kinds of narratives, I think, are important in sort of providing people with a little bit of, um, forcing them to become a little bit more reflexive of their own positionality in the volunteer, in volunteer tourism, but also thinking about the structural sort of implications of these narratives. So narratives are not, uh, narratives have material implications. And so when we start, if the narrative is volunteer tourism is uh, a viable answer to inequality, then we really lose sight of the broader issues that contribute to this inequality in the first place. Let's say somebody is interested in being a volunteer tourist. Uh, we understand that it may be a Band-Aid, but there's still an opportunity to do some good. What are the suggestions you have for any of the listeners who are thinking like, you know, I want to do this, I want to have a positive impact somewhere, but I don't know how to do it in the most positive way. So do you have any pointers for somebody who's interested in doing that like, how do they be a good volunteer tourist? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think there are a number of online resources um, today, and there's a number of, definitely in the academic literature, there's sort of the do's and don'ts of volunteer tourism. Um, so can you just give us, like, a couple of those? Like, what, what are a couple of do's and a couple of don'ts? Right, so the do's would definitely be to research, uh, research the organization. You want to make sure that the organizations are um, really in partnership with local communities instead of exploiting local communities. Um, and so there would be a big difference in that. Oftentimes, if you see a really high price tag, it often means that you're spending most of that money is going to the organization itself rather than the host community. So I would also look for organizations that are transparent on where their money is going. Um, and then you also want to look for an organization that is, uh, that trains its volunteers. So just because you speak English doesn't mean that you necessarily can teach English, for example. And so you want to make sure that you're um, agreeing to participate in something that you're qualified to do rather than just paying for an experience if your goal is to really give something to uh, contribute something to the host community. Sure, like I shouldn't go somewhere that is going to have me build a house for somebody because it would fall down because I don't know how to build a house. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Um, yeah, so... I mean, these are the main things to really 
pay attention to in terms of um, the volunteer organization itself. Another thing that people might that it might be helpful to do is to ask for um, contact information of former volunteers and email those volunteers and ask them about their experience. Um, that can be that can give you a lot of information about sort of what what to expect as well as uh, people who have gone through that particular program, what their perceptions are uh, on the impact that they were able to have um, and the, the legitimacy of the program itself. Um, yeah. And do you see most people as taking part in like formal programs? Because not everybody can, you know, take three months and move somewhere and integrate themselves in the community and then try and start to do some good. So is it like most of the most of people who do volunteer tourism are going through a program of some sort? Um, I would say most people do go through programs. Um, some and programs range. So, I mean, it depends on your definition of volunteer tourism, but volunteer tourism activities can be anywhere from a few hours to a year or more. Um, so there's a lot of options out there. There's definitely a lot of options out there. Um, so you want to really want to sort of do a little bit of research to figure out what your options are in the place that you're going and to, um, to identify the types of activities that you feel like you're qualified to participate in. Um, and in some cases, it's important to think about the context in which the volunteer tourism experience is being um, is being promoted. So in some cases you're you may for example if you want to if you want to teach English and you're only planning to be somewhere for one week, you really just need to think logically about is this actually going to be an effective English lesson, for example. Um, of course, like these kinds of things require a significant amount of time. So it really also depends on the amount of time that you're willing to spend in a place. Um, some things can be done in like one day to one week if you're uh, participating in some kind of manual labor or you need to uh, you're working on translations for something. Um, but I think it's important to consider uh, whether or not it's feasible to make the difference that you're hoping to make in the amount of time that you have and choose your activities accordingly. I think that's awesome advice. And Mary, I, I really want to thank you for joining me on the podcast. I think you've provided a lot of really interesting information about volunteer tourism and what our listeners can do if they want to be a volunteer tourist in an intelligent way. So thanks for coming on the show. Uh, great. Thanks so much for having me. Everybody's alright Everybody's inside Everybody's on you And this summer roof Everybody's alright Everybody's inside Blue that chimpanzee From this Zimbabwe Everybody's alright Everybody's alright Everybody's alright Everybody's alright Woo!